Well, good morning and welcome to Time Change Sunday. And hello to those of you online who uh, didn't quite make it today because of Time Change Sunday. We're glad that you're watching either way. Hey, would you guys do me a favor? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And you think I'm giving you a moment to pray, but really I'm just going to let you take a nap for about 20 seconds. And then you're going to be good to go. And we might as well go ahead and pray too. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, that is always true and it is always good. And I pray that your spirit would speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are finishing up Romans chapter 8. And I hope that you've got something out of this study. And uh, maybe it's brought a little bit of Romans chapter 8 to life for you, or you're able to see something new. It's amazing how when we read the Word of God, how we can always see new things. And we've been planning this uh, particular series for a while now. And even this particular Sunday and the passages that I have today uh, were on my plate now for a few months. But I had no idea when we set this all on the calendar a while back how much these passages would apply to the things that I am facing. And so today, as I go through this, it may just be that uh, maybe God is going to speak to you too as I share what I have learned. Maybe you just walk away from here and go, man, my pastor has some issues, man. But hopefully we're all going to get something out of this. And I think as we get to the end of Romans chapter 8, there's a few things that we need to wrestle with. I mean, it starts out so amazing. I mean, we start out with this scripture, right? There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So there's this great promise at the end. And then it goes on to say, and you have the spirit of God. The same spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same Spirit of God. And then it goes on even more beautifully to say, and you are adopted as God's own children because of the Spirit of God. That's why we have no condemnation. And then he shifts gears a little bit with us. And Blaine shared about this last week. And he talks about how even in the hard times, we have hope. But there are hard times. And then the ending of this chapter, I really think, it, it ends just as amazing as the entire chapter is. I would even dare to say that the end of chapter 8 are some of my absolute favorite verses in the entire wholeness of Scripture. I mean, there's some really good stuff at the end of chapter 8. But I have to say, some of the verses are so good at the end of chapter 8 that they're kind of what I call Hobby Lobby verses. Right? I mean, they end up on a plaque, you know, that you hang up somewhere in your house because it's a great scripture. But as we look at these scriptures, I think we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. For example, that uh, the, the passage that the video ended with just a moment. What shall we say about such wonderful things? If God is for us, who can ever be against us, right? You went to Hobby Lobby too and found that. Got it hanging in your house too, right? Who can ever be against us? And I love this scripture. I love this passage. Because of what Jesus has done for me and has done for you, who can ever be against us? And in our heads, we can know that. In our spirits, we can know that. But sometimes I think we have to look at our lives and go, well, if I'm really honest, 
I could probably give you a list. I mean, do you guys need a list of, if I'm really being honest, here's the people who are against me or the situations that are against me? And we can have this spiritual passion that says, okay, yes, who could ever be against us? But then when it comes down to it, I could, I could probably give you a list of people or things that are against me. And you probably could too, right? We want to believe who could ever be against me. But then there's the other side of that coin as well. It sounds good in church, but when we have to really wrap our heads around it, it can get kind of tough. Verse 28 is another one. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. But sometimes we go through things in life that don't really seem so good. Am I right? Paul gives us these beautiful promises at the end. He gives us this lens that we can look through and see the goodness and the pureness and the trueness of God. But I also think that it's important that we take a look at the setting that Paul is giving us these verses in. Because I think sometimes we can look at verses like that and say, God works out all things together for the good of those who love him. And we can believe that. But sometimes when we look at our own lives, we feel like it's a contradiction, right? I mean, if God is working everything out for the good, then why am I going through this? How come this is going from bad to even worse? How come this has been another year of facing this challenge, right? You love God, but your marriage is still falling apart. Your home is still broken. Your finances are still in shambles. You've been praying to be healed, but the diagnosis is still there. God works out all things for the good of those who love him. And in moments like this, if we're honest, God can seem a little inconsistent, right? We believe his word. And if we call ourselves believers, we can rally around that. But inside we go, okay, well, where does that mesh together? God can seem inconsistent and even well-meaning people can be a little bit offensive in our times of trouble, right? When you're going through the struggles of life and somebody just pats you on the back and says, well, God will work it all out for good, (laughs) you know, and you're just like, "I I don't know that that really helps right now in this moment. Life can be hard. And honestly, I don't know if this message is going to encourage you today or not, but hopefully as we look at God's word, we are going to see his encouragement in this because if we can understand the heart that Paul writes these passages in and the context of which he is writing and communicating these words, I think we can understand better. It's verse 28 that we're referring to. It says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. In these last few weeks, I've been chewing on this verse and trying to wrap my head around it as I go through the struggles of life, as you guys have been through the struggles of life and asking myself these questions, where does this mesh together? And I want to start with those first three words right there. He says, And we know. And you heard that video talk about the assurance of God. And as we read through Romans, he says, the spirit of God is within you, meshing with your spirit to assure you that you are adopted. So he's talking about 
and we know. In other words, Paul has no doubt whatsoever. I don't know about you guys, but I like uh, watching my sports teams, the, the ones that I particularly like. And I don't even mind watching them. Sometimes I just have to record them or see them later, even after I already know who wins. And if they won, I don't mind going back and watching it. Now, if they lost, I just think, oh, okay, I don't even want to watch that one, right? It's miserable. But even when I already know, I can find great pleasure in watching it because I know the outcome, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's writing from a context of understanding, even though you're going through something difficult right now, we know what the outcome is going to be. And he's saying, he's saying we, not just Paul, but he's saying as believers, we know what the outcome is going to be. So he's writing to us with this assurance that even when you're on the good days and the bad days, the days that are thrilling and the days that are mundane, the days that are full of excitement, the days that are just somewhere in between, we can have assurance. We can know that whatever we're facing, that God works that together for the good of those who love him. He's reminding us to trust in the author of the ultimate story that he is writing about. Whether we're facing fear or whether we're facing faith, he's saying there's a good ending. And for some of us, you may be in the middle of the chapter right now and you can't see the good ending that is coming later, but he's reminding you that you're in the middle of the chapter and we know what's coming. Some of you are in a chapter right now that was unwelcomed, whether that's divorce, abuse, disease, stress, finances, all those things are real. And so I don't want to come across today at all as by saying, just pretend everything is great. The truth is, some of you are in the middle of a difficult chapter, or you have been through a difficult chapter, or at some point in your life, you will be going through a difficult chapter, and he's reminding us that there is a promise here. But here's the tough part. As he reminds us of God's goodness, God's goodness thoroughly shines through because it is set in the context of suffering. The goodness of God shows up even brighter because as Paul's writing, as, as Blaine talked about last week, he's writing to people who are suffering, who have given up many things to follow Christ, who are facing death, who are, who are facing many obstacles in their lives, and they're in the middle of suffering. So as we read these passages of God's promises, we have to look at these good promises of God through that lens, that there is suffering, and we have to understand that. Verse 17 in Romans even reminded us, you are going to share in the glory of God, but when we share in God's glory, it also means that we share in His suffering. There was a Barna survey that was out not too long ago where they asked people, if you could ask God one question and you knew absolutely that you would get the answer to that question, what would that question be? And the number one response was, why is there so much suffering? Right? I mean, we can understand it on a broader perspective, you know, that we can ask that globally and as far as humanity goes. But then it's a whole other thing when it's, it's your life, right? And God, I love you and I'm trying to do the right thing, so why is there suffering? Why does God allow evil in the world? 
Right? I mean, we would have to be living with our head in the sand to not realize there are evil atrocities all over the world that happen every day. So this comes to a a philosophical perspective, and it, it really is an argument against Christianity that's been made for generations. And the argument is this. Uh, it's, it's a trilemma, if I can make up a word. I don't think that's a real word. A trilemma, right? A dilemma is two, so two opposing parts. Trilemma, we got three, right? So God is omnibenevolent. In other words, God is completely loving. God is also omnipotent. God is completely powerful. So God in his totality is all-loving, and God is also all-powerful. So if God is all-loving, and God is all-powerful, then why do bad things happen? Why do evil things happen? Why does suffering come upon your life when you're following him and you're doing all of the right things? That trilemma makes sense, right? If God is all-good, and he's all-loving, and he's all-powerful, then why do these bad things happen? So the argument goes like this. If your God is all-loving, then he should want to stop these bad things, right? If you're a parent, you would understand this. Why in the world would you ever want bad things to happen to your kids? Because you love them, right? So if God is all-loving, wouldn't he want to stop these things? And if God is all-powerful, then he can stop these things. But God doesn't stop these things. So is it that your God is not all loving? He's not God then. Not what you believe in. Is it that your God is not all powerful? Well, then certainly he's not God. So this is the argument that presents itself. But I want to counter with this. Could it be that there's more than just two attributes of God? Yes, he is all-loving. Yes, he is all-powerful. But could we take this trilemma and turn it into a quadrilemma? That's four lemmas, right? Can we look at this and go, God is also all-wise. Is it possible that suffering could actually play a role in God's love? Is it possible that going through difficult circumstances could even draw us closer to God. Now, again, as a parent, uh, you went through this uh, period with your children, especially when they were young. And we had to go through this with Nate when we adopted him. You have to go to the doctor and get a whole boatload of shots, right? All kinds of shots. And uh, this is not an immunization debate here, but you got to take them. Before we could bring him to the United States, we had to get all kinds of shots for him, right? Shots hurt. We all agree. They're scary. We all agree with that. Um, And shots can even make you a little bit sick, right? Which really doesn't make sense. But, you know, they can bring a little bit of sickness to prevent you from the big sickness. And in the midst of taking your child to get a shot, they could look at you and say, you love me, right? Well, of course I love you, my child. And they could look at you and say, well, you can stop this, right? And technically you can. You can get your child and you can walk out of the doctor's office. And yet your child can go, but the doctor and the needle, right? It's right there. Why aren't you stopping this? 
And in that moment, you just have to hold your child's hand and say, look the other way. This is going to hurt. It's going to go away. We're going to get through this. Even though I'm not omniscient and I'm not omnipotent, I can understand for my child, I understand why this is good. But in the moment, it's going to hurt. And in the moment, it's going to be scary. But ultimately, it is for their good. So is there a quadrilemma here where we can understand God is all wise and he knows things that we do not know? Let me pile another lemma here on the pile and make it a quintilemma. God is also outside of time and space, right? I mean, we see life through this linear process of a handful of years, but God has always existed. He was, and he is, and he always will be, and you see today and what happened in the past, but God can see it all. He's not bound to the same linear time that you and I are bound to. Is it possible That the suffering we experience in this snap of a lifetime, the suffering that we experience, even though it can be devastating and immensely painful, is so infinitely small in the grand picture that maybe our happiness and our comfort is not God's main objective. Maybe he can see the big picture that we can't see at the moment. So isn't it possible when we get down to it that God knows more than we know? If God is the greatest being, because that's the concept of what we're talking about God here, as a believer, you believe that, but even just from a philosophical standpoint, if we're saying there is a God, you're saying that he is the greatest being. But if it comes down to it, If I know more than God does, even about my own happiness, if I know more than God does, doesn't that make me a greater being than God? So who is God if you know more than God does? You is, right? And when it comes down to it, he is God and we are not. And he sees what we cannot see. And no parent likes for their child to suffer, but God sees from a much greater perspective than you and I can see. And when we let God be God, I think we have to wrestle with this question and understand he loves his children. He can stop evil and suffering. He can bring healing. He can do miraculous things. But at the same time, we have to let God be God even when it doesn't meet our expectations. You and I might not outright say that we know more than God does, but it's easy in our lives to live that way, right? I mean, we could sit back and say, yeah, God knows more than me. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But God, this is what I want to see happen. And this is why I want to see it happen. I think when it comes down to it, Sometimes we confuse the goodness of God with God simply doing what you want God to do, what I want God to do, right? If God is good, then he would fill in whatever blank I have, right? Whatever blank you have. If God is good, then he would do this. Then he would stop this. And if he doesn't, 
then we come to a crossroads in our faith and say, God, why didn't you do that? Is God good? I don't know. Because I prayed and I even said in Jesus' name at the end of my prayer and I sang the songs and I went to church and I put money in the box, but God didn't do what I wanted him to do. And in that moment in your life, is God still good? Maybe, linguistically speaking, our understanding of good can be really small. Maybe God understands good on so much of a bigger scale, right? We have a very small definition for what good is. Let's say, you know, here I release you guys in just a few minutes and, and you're leaving. And I love after church each week to give sweet Miss Iris a hug. And the reason I love giving her a hug is because she always tells me how good I did. So it makes me feel really good, right? But let's say just on this particular day, I was busy and I missed Miss Iris and I didn't get to give her a hug. And so I go out to the parking lot and I want to get her attention, but she's already a hundred yards away. So what am I to do? I mean, she's way over there. She can't hear me. It's, well, there's a rock right there. So let me pick up the rock. And from a hundred yards away, and I hit her right between the eyes. I'm a very good shot. I am not a good person. Right? At the same time, I am good and I am not good by two totally different definitions. Maybe we have a limited definition. Maybe our perspective of good is extremely biased because we only see part of the story, right? Nate gets on a bus, a school bus, every morning, except for this week. You don't have to go to school, Nate, all right? Spring break. But he gets on a school bus, and he's so excited when that bus comes, a lot of times he just likes to run down the driveway, into the street, into the bus, and without using his cane or anything. And so let's say in that moment, we've already established I'm a really good shot, right? As he's running to the bus, I also see that there is another car coming, and there is disaster headed his way. And I'm yelling, Nate, stop! Nate, stop! But he can't hear me. So again, I pick up this rock, and I get his attention by stopping Now, the neighbor who was watching out the window, all they saw was dad walk outside, pick up a rock, and throw it at his blind son. That neighbor thinks you are a horrible, horrible man. But in the moment, leaving a bruise on my child would be so much better than letting them walk into a car. So actually, my actions were good. Does that make sense? Sometimes we cannot see the perspective from God's perspective. So here's a truth that we have to grasp. It's this. I am not qualified to judge good and fair. Even for my own life, I am not qualified to judge good and fair because I am too biased and my perspective is too limited. When Paul uses the the term good in scripture, here's what he's pointing us to. He's pointing us to this. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. When he talks about it being good and God working for the good in our lives, he's talking about everything that's going on in our life is going to make us more like 
Jesus. More like God intended for us to be. What he created us to be. The fullness of everything that God wants us to have. That is the goodness of God. God's definition of good is much larger and grander than our personal satisfaction could ever be. It goes on to say this in verse 29 and 30, For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to be like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. So in this, the trilemma is really pretty easily solved. Unless I know better than God, it's possible that the pain that you and I face has a purpose. That God has a purpose in the pain. Now, I'm not saying he caused the pain, but I'm saying in the midst of pain, God can have a purpose beyond what you and I can see. Now, again, I don't mean to belittle this because I know there's people in this room and you're facing genuine painful things. And you're suffering through genuine things right here in this room. So I don't mean to come across at all as here's three points to get over your pain and just be happy with Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Even as we look at Jesus, when, when he runs into suffering, John eleven thirty five 35 simply said this, Jesus wept. He sat down with his loved ones and he wept. And sometimes the best thing that we can do in the midst of suffering, the people suffering around us, is just be there with them. What does Jesus think of suffering? He sits with those who are suffering, and he weeps with them. God hates the, the, the destruction and the suffering that sin has caused within our world, and that brokenness has caused within our world. And that's the bottom line of it is we live in a broken world. After Adam and Eve sin, there's the fall of man, and we live in a broken world where bad things happen, even to good people. So here's the next thing I want us to understand, is that God did not author your pain, but he refuses to waste it. The things that you're going through right now, God wants to use those things. What are some good things that can come from suffering? Well, here's just a few. Suffering can cause us to turn from sin to cause us, those things, to work together for our good. It's not that God causes the pain, but sometimes the pain that is within our lives will cause us to turn from things that cause pain within our lives so that we can draw closer to Jesus, and it will point us towards good. Suffering can also cause us to rely on Jesus. Sometimes it comes down to when Jesus is the only thing you have left, when he's the only hope that you have, that's when we realize how good that he is. When he's all that we have left to lean on. Third thing, suffering aids in our sanctification. Churchy word there, but it means helping us to become more and more like Christ. It's like sandpaper rubbing off those edges. 
And it's never comfortable or easy, but God would use those things to make us more like him, to refine us and to give us character. Paul, who writes this letter, is a great example of that. Right? God's continually refining him as he goes on these missions. He's reaching out to people. He wants to get to Rome. And through the midst of all of this, he's beaten and he's thrown in jail. He's thrown out of town and he's mocked all these things just over and over again. And they catch him and they say, hey, you know, we're going to kill you. And he says, okay, well, to die is gain. Okay, well, we're going to let you live. Well, to live is Christ. I'll be even more like Christ. Christ. And they say, okay, well, we'll just torture you then. Well, the present sufferings compared to the glory of God are are nothing. All right, well, we'll just throw you in jail. All right, well, I'm just going to lead all of your guards to Christ while I'm there. And just everything that's thrown at him just causes him to be more and more like the person that God created him to be. When we let God work in us in the midst of our suffering. It causes us to be the men and women of God that he created us to be. Sometimes in hard times, we just need simple. So if I can just give you simple, I hope this, I don't make this too simple for you here. But in the midst of suffering, here's what I want you to know. God's plan was only for good. When God created the world, it was only for good. But sin brought bad things. Bad things are not good things. God doesn't see them as good things. But God makes bad things work for our good. And the best things are even yet to come. What God wants to do in you, through you, and as we spend eternity with him, all of these things are a bridge to God. And Paul concludes Romans 8 as a good teacher does. I've been uh, meeting with a mentor and a group uh, once a week now for a while. And the particular pastor that's leading this group, sometimes it's almost frustrating because instead of teaching us anything, he's just asking questions. And one day it was like all the questions were coming at me. Well, what do you think that means, Adam? So what is God saying, Adam? So what is just over and over, question, 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 question. But it's the same thing that Jesus did. And these questions help us to solidify what God has done in us. So Paul builds this great chapter in chapter 8, and then he finishes like a good teacher. And he's just going to throw a whole bunch of questions at us so that we can be confident in who God has called us to be. We can have confidence in God's provision. He says this in verse 31, 32. What shall we say about Things as wonderful as these. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also give us everything else? Paul, remember, he's an expert in the law here. He's going to argue from greater to lesser. He's going to start with Jesus and saying, Listen, God gave you Jesus. He gave you the very best. Doesn't it make sense that you have no need to be concerned about his provision? If he's already started with the best, doesn't it follow that we can trust him with anything else, everything else, even when we don't understand his purpose? If the father has given his son, we can trust him with everything. We can also have confidence 
in God's defense. He goes on in 33 and 34 and says this, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So Paul begins to use this legal language here, right? And even in our own legal system, right? Let's say you go to court and then you end up having to appeal and it's going to go up to a higher court and you have to appeal again. Eventually in our country, it gets up to the Supreme Court, right? And if the Supreme Court rules in your favor, then it's done. It has been ruled in your favor and that is Paul's argument here. That's Paul's line of logic. If Jesus has justified you, who can condemn you? You have been justified by Jesus himself. And he even says that Jesus right now is pleading your case. That's comforting to know. Because of that, we can, we can have the freedom just to admit we failed. To admit we've messed up, realizing Jesus is the one pleading our case. He is the one who steps up for us. And lastly, the chapter finishes with this. We can have confidence in God's love. It says this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or persecution, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that was revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No matter what we are facing, no matter what the present sufferings may be, if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. The Spirit of God is within you. The hope of God is within you. And God will use all of the things that seem to come against you, that seem to be uncomfortable for His good to cause us to be more like Christ, like the people that we were created to be. And you can have peace today knowing that nothing that you face can stop that. No matter how good or no matter how bad, the promise of God is your promise. And even when it doesn't feel like it, it's your promise. You may have heard of... um, Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she helped rescue people in the Holocaust, and she was a firm believer in Christ and a writer. She wrote a poem 
about a tapestry. And I want to share that with you here in closing today, but I want you to picture in your mind what this tapestry is. On one side, you have a beautiful piece of artwork, right? But on the other side, it's completely ugly with stray threads. She writes this, My life is but a weaving between God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Would you pray with me? Father, today I... I want to lift up specifically, Lord, those who are struggling right now. Struggling to trust you. Struggling to put their faith in you. Or just struggling to make it through the next day. Because all the answers don't seem to line up. Relationships are broken. Our bodies are in physical ailment. Our finances may be in trouble. And Father, sometimes we just have to say it's hard. Because we can't see the other side of that tapestry to trust in you. But Father, we want to ask today, would you help us to trust in you? I also want to pray today for any of you who might have struggled with the trilemma. God is good. God is powerful. Why is there still evil? And it's left you at a place where you couldn't fully trust God. Maybe today you're in a place where you'll say, okay, I'll take a step of faith knowing that he can see everything that he knows more than I know, that he's outside of time and space. Maybe that's you today for the first time or the hundredth time. Would you just take a moment? Would you ask God to come into your life, to be in control of your life? Would you surrender who you are to him? Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus for us. Lord, though we live in this broken world, you sent the Redeemer that we might have hope and you sent the Holy Spirit that we could be filled with assurance and that we could be your own. Lord, thank you that you invite us to your table. You have called us your sons and daughters. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.